Section 25 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Read by Janice in Georgia. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1, by James Boswell. Section 25. 1762, Etat 53. In 1762 he wrote for the Reverend Dr. Kennedy, rector of Bradley in Derbyshire, in a strain of very courtly elegance, a dedication to the king of that gentleman's work, entitled, A Complete System of Astronomical Chronology Unfolding the Scriptures. He had certainly looked at this work before it was printed for the concluding paragraph is undoubtedly of his composition, of which let my readers judge. Thus have I endeavoured to free religion and history from the darkness of a disputed and uncertain chronology, from difficulties which have hitherto appeared insuperable, and darkness which no luminary of learning has hitherto been able to dissipate. I have established the truth of the mosaical account by evidence which no transcription can corrupt, no negligence can lose, and no interest can pervert. I have shown that the universe bears witness to the inspiration of its historian, by the revolution of its orbs and the succession of its seasons, that the stars in their courses fight against incredulity that the works of God give hourly confirmation to the law, the prophets, and the gospel, of which one day telleth another, and one night certifieth another, and that the validity of the sacred writings can never be denied while the moon shall increase and wane, and the sun shall know his going down. He this year wrote also the dedication to the Earl of Middlesex of Mrs. Lennox's female Quixote, and the preface to the catalogue of the artist's exhibition. The following letter, which, on account of its intrinsic merit, it would have been unjust both to Johnson and the public to have withheld, was obtained for me by the solicitation of my friend Mr. Seward. To Dr. Staunton now Sir George Staunton, Baronet. Dear Sir, I make haste to answer your kind letter in hope of hearing again from you before you leave us. I cannot but regret that a man of your qualification should find it necessary to seek an establishment in Guadalupe, which, if a peace should restore to the French, I shall think it some alleviation of the loss that it must restore likewise Dr. Staunton to the English. It is a melancholy consideration that so much of our time is necessarily to be spent upon the care of the living, and that we can seldom obtain ease in one respect but by resigning it in another. Yet I suppose we are by this dispensation not less happy in the whole than if the spontaneous bounty of nature poured all that we want into our hands. A few, if they were thus left to themselves, would, perhaps, spend their time in laudable pursuits. But the greater part would prey upon the quiet of each other, 
or in the want of other objects, would prey upon themselves. This, however, is our condition, which we must improve and solace as we can, and though we cannot choose always our place of residence, we may in every place find rational amusements, and possess in every place the comforts of piety and a pure conscience. In America there is little to be observed except natural curiosities. The new world must have many vegetables and animals with which philosophers are but little acquainted. I hope you will furnish yourself with some books of natural history, and some glasses and other instruments of observation." Trust as little as you can to report. Examine all you can by your own senses. I do not doubt but you will be able to add much to knowledge and, perhaps, to medicine. Wild nations trust to simples, and perhaps the Peruvian bark is not the only specific which those extensive regions may afford us. Wherever you are, and whatever be your fortune, be certain, dear sir, that you carry with you my kind wishes, and that whether you return hither, or stay in the other hemisphere, to hear that you are happy will give pleasure to, sir, your most affectionate humble servant, Samuel Johnson, June 1, 1762. A lady, having at this time solicited him to obtain the Archbishop of Canterbury's patronage to have her son sent to the university, one of those solicitations which are too frequent, where people, anxious for a particular object, do not consider propriety, or the opportunity which the persons whom they solicit have to assist them, he wrote to her the following answer, with a copy of which I am favoured by the Reverend Dr. Farmer, Master of Emmanuel College, Cambridge. Madam, I hope you will believe that my delay in answering your letter could proceed only from my unwillingness to destroy any hope that you had formed. Hope is itself a species of happiness, and perhaps the chief happiness which this world affords. But, like all other pleasures immoderately enjoyed, the excesses of hope must be expiated by pain, and expectations improperly indulged must end in disappointment. If it be asked what is the improper expectation which it is dangerous to indulge, Experience will quickly answer that it is such expectation as is dictated not by reason, but by desire. Expectation raised not by the common occurrences of life, but by the wants of the expectant. An expectation that requires the common course of things to be changed, and the general rules of action to be broken. When you made your request to me, you should have considered, madam, what you were asking. You ask me to solicit a great man, to whom I never spoke, for a young person whom I had never seen, upon a supposition which I had no means of knowing to be true. There is no reason why, amongst all the great, I should choose to supplicate the archbishop, nor why, among all the possible objects of his bounty, the archbishop should choose your son. 
I know, madam, how unwillingly conviction is admitted when interest opposes it. But surely, madam, you must allow that there is no reason why that should be done by me which every other man may do with equal reason, and which, indeed, no man can do properly without some very particular relation both to the archbishop and to you. If I could help you in this exigence by any proper means, it would give me pleasure." but this proposal is so very remote from all usual methods that I cannot comply with it, but at the risk of such answer and suspicions as I believe you do not wish me to undergo. I have seen your son this morning. He seems a pretty youth, and will, perhaps, find some better friend than I can procure him. But though he should at last miss the university, he may still be wise, useful, and happy. I am, madam, your most humble servant, Samuel Johnson. June 8, 1762 To Mr. Joseph Baretti at Milan, London, July 20, 1762 Sir, however justly you may accuse me for want of punctuality and correspondence, I am not so far lost in negligence as to omit the opportunity of writing to you which Mr. Beauclerk's passage through Milan affords me. I suppose you receive the idlers, and I intend that you shall soon receive Shakespeare, that you may explain his works to the ladies of Italy, and tell them the story of the editor, among the other strange narratives with which your long residence in this unknown region has supplied you. As you have now been long away, I suppose your curiosity may pant for some news of your old friends. Miss Williams and I live much as we did. Miss Cotterell continues to cling to Mrs. Porter, and Charlotte is now big of the fourth child. Mr. Reynolds gets six thousands a year. Levitt is lately married, not without much suspicion that he has been wretchedly cheated in his match. Mr. Chambers is gone this day, for the first time, the circuit with the judges. Mr. Richardson is dead of an apoplexy, and his second daughter has married a merchant. My vanity, or my kindness, makes me flatter myself that you would rather hear of me than of those whom I have mentioned. But of myself I have very little which I care to tell. Last winter I went down to my native town, where I found the streets much narrower and shorter than I thought I had left them, inhabited by a new race of people to whom I was very little known. My playfellows were grown old, and forced me to suspect that I was no longer young. My only remaining friend has changed his principles, and was become the tool of the predominant faction. My daughter-in-law, from whom I expected most, and whom I met with sincere benevolence, has lost the beauty and gaiety of youth, without having gained much of the wisdom of age." I wandered about for five days, and took the first convenient opportunity of returning to a place where, if there is not much happiness, there is at least such a diversity of good and evil that slight vexations do not 
fix upon the heart. I think in a few weeks to try another excursion, though to what end? Let me know, my Baretti, what has been the result of your return to your own country, whether time has made any alteration for the better, and whether, when the first raptures of salutation were over, you did not find your thoughts confess their disappointment. Moral sentences appeared ostentatious and tumid when they have no greater occasion than the journey of a wit to his own town. Yet such pleasures and such pains make up the general mass of life, and as nothing is little to him that feels it with great sensibility, a mind able to see common incidents in their real state is disposed by very common incidents to some very serious contemplations. Let us trust that a time will come when the present moment shall be no longer irksome, when we shall not borrow all our happiness from hope, which at last is to end in disappointment. I beg that you will show Mr. Beauclerk all the civilities which you have in your power, for he has always been kind to me. I have lately seen Mr. Stratico, professor of Padua, who has told me of your quarrel with an abbot of the Celestine order, but had not the particulars very ready in his memory. When you write to Mr. Marsili, let him know that I remember him with kindness. May you, my Baretti, be very happy in Milan, or some other place nearer to, sir, your most affectionate humble servant, Samuel Johnson. The accession of George the Third to the throne of these kingdoms opened a new and brighter prospect to men of literary merit who had been honoured with no mark of royal favour in the preceding reign. His present majesty's education in this country, as well as his taste and beneficence, prompted him to be the patron of science and the arts and early this year Johnson, having been represented to him as a very learned and good man, without any certain provision, his majesty was pleased to grant him a pension of three hundred pounds a year. The Earl of Bute, who was then Prime Minister, had the honour to announce this instance of his sovereign's bounty, concerning which many and various stories, all equally erroneous, have been propagated, maliciously representing it as a political bribe to Johnson to desert his avowed principles and become the tool of government which he held to be founded in usurpation. I have taken care to have it in my power to refute them from the most authentic information. Lord Bute told me that Mr. Wedderburn, now Lord Loughborough, was the person who first mentioned this subject to him. Lord Loughborough told me that the pension was granted to Johnson solely as the reward of his literary merit, without any stipulation whatever, or even tacit understanding that he should write for administration. His lordship added that he was confident the political tracts which Johnson afterwards did write, as they were entirely consonant with his own opinions, would have been written by him though no pension had been granted to him. Mr. Thomas Sheridan and Mr. Murphy, who then lived a good deal both with him and Mr. Wedderburn, 
told me that they previously talked with Johnson upon this matter, and that it was perfectly understood by all parties that the pension was merely honorary. Sir Joshua Reynolds told me that Johnson called on him after His Majesty's intention had been notified to him, and said he wished to consult his friends as to the propriety of his accepting this mark of the royal favour after the definitions which he had given in his dictionary of pension and pensioners. He said he would not have Sir Joshua's answer till next day, when he would call again, and desired he might think of it. Sir Joshua answered that he was clear to give his opinion then, that there could be no objection to his receiving from the king a reward for literary merit, and that certainly the definitions in his dictionary were not applicable to him. Johnson, it should seem, was satisfied, for he did not call again till he had accepted the pension, and had waited on Lord Bute to thank him. He then told Sir Joshua that Lord Bute said to him expressly, it is not given you for anything you are to do, but for what you have done. His lordship, he said, behaved in the handsomest manner. He repeated the words twice, that he might be sure Johnson heard them, and thus set his mind perfectly at ease. This nobleman, who had been so virulently abused, acted with great honour in this instance and displayed a mind truly liberal. A minister of a more narrow and selfish disposition would have availed himself of such an opportunity to fix an implied obligation on a man of Johnson's powerful talents to give him his support. Mr. Murphy and the late Mr. Sheridan severally contended for the distinction of having been the first who mentioned to Mr. Wedderburn that Johnson ought to have a pension. When I spoke of this to Lord Loughborough, wishing to know if he recollected the prime mover in the business, he said, All his friends assisted. And when I told him that Mr. Sheridan strenuously asserted his claim to it, his lordship said, he rang the bell. And it is but just to add that Mr. Sheridan told me that when he communicated to Dr. Johnson that a pension was to be granted him, he replied in a fervor of gratitude, The English language does not afford me terms adequate to my feelings on this occasion. I must have recourse to the French. I am penetré with His Majesty's goodness." When I repeated this to Dr. Johnson, he did not contradict it. His definitions of pension and pensioner, partly founded on the satirical verses of Pope which he quotes, may be generally true, and yet everybody must allow that there may be, and have been, instances of pensions given and received upon liberal and honorable terms. Thus, then, it is clear that there was nothing inconsistent or humiliating in Johnson's accepting of a pension so unconditionally and so honorably offered to him. But I shall not detain my readers longer by any words of my own on a subject on which I am happily enabled, by the favor of the Earl of Bute, to present them with what Johnson himself wrote. 
his lordship having been pleased to communicate to me a copy of the following letter to his late father which does great honour both to the writer and to the noble person to whom it is addressed to the right honourable the earl of bute my lord when the bills were yesterday delivered to me by Mr. Wedderburn, I was informed by him of the future favours which His Majesty has, by your Lordship's recommendation, been induced to intend for me. Bounty always receives part of its value from the manner in which it is bestowed. Your Lordship's kindness includes every circumstance that can gratify delicacy or enforce obligation. You have conferred your favours on a man who has neither alliance nor interest, who has not merited them by services, nor courted them by officiousness. You have spared him the shame of solicitation and the anxiety of suspense. What has been thus elegantly given will, I hope, not be reproachfully enjoyed. I shall endeavour to give your lordship the only recompense which generosity desires, the gratification of finding that your benefits are not improperly bestowed. I am, my lord, your lordship's most obliged, most obedient, and most humble servant, Samuel Johnson. July 20, 1762 this year his friend Sir Joshua Reynolds paid a visit of some weeks to his native country, Devonshire, in which he was accompanied by Johnson, who was much pleased with this jaunt, and declared he had derived from it a great accession of new ideas. He was entertained at the seats of several noblemen and gentlemen in the west of England. But the greatest part of the time was passed at Plymouth, where the magnificence of the navy, the shipbuilding in all its circumstances, afforded him a grand subject of contemplation. The commissioner of the dockyard paid him the compliment of ordering the yacht to convey him and his friend to the Eddystone, to which they accordingly sailed. But the weather was so tempestuous that they could not land. Note. At one of these seats, Dr. Amyat, physician in London, told me he happened to meet him. In order to amuse him till dinner should be ready, he was taken out to walk in the garden. The master of the house, thinking it proper to introduce something scientific into the conversation, addressed him thus. "'Are you a botanist, Dr. Johnson?' "'No, sir,' answered Johnson. "'I am not a botanist.' and, alluding no doubt to his near-sightedness, should I wish to become a botanist, I must first turn myself into a reptile. End of note. Reynolds and he were at this time the guests of Dr. Mudge, the celebrated surgeon and now physician of that place, not more distinguished for quickness of parts and variety of knowledge than loved and esteemed for his amiable manners and here Johnson formed an acquaintance with Dr. Mudge's father, that very eminent divine, the Reverend Zachariah Mudge, prebendary of Exeter, who was idolized in the West both for his excellence as a preacher 
and the uniform perfect propriety of his private conduct. He preached a sermon purposely that Johnson might hear him, and we shall see afterwards that Johnson honoured his memory by drawing his character. While Johnson was at Plymouth he saw a great many of its inhabitants, and was not sparing of his very entertaining conversation. It was here that he made the frank and truly original confession that ignorance, pure ignorance, was the cause of a wrong definition in his dictionary of the word pastern, to the no small surprise of the lady who put the question to him who, having the most profound reverence for his character so as almost to suppose him endowed with infallibility, expected to hear an explanation of what, to be sure, seems strange to a common reader, drawn from some deep-learned source of which she was unacquainted. Sir Joshua Reynolds, to whom I was obliged for my information concerning this excursion, mentions a very characteristical anecdote of Johnson while at Plymouth. Having observed that in consequence of the dockyard a new town had arisen about two miles off as a rival to the old, and knowing from his sagacity and just observation of human nature that it is certain that if a man hates at all he will hate his next neighbor, he concluded that this new and rising town could not but excite the envy and jealousy of the old, in which conjecture he was very soon confirmed. He therefore set himself resolutely on the side of the old town, the established town, in which his lot was cast, considering it as a kind of duty to stand by it. He accordingly entered warmly into its interests, and upon every occasion talked of the dockers, as the inhabitants of the new town were called, as upstarts and aliens. Plymouth is very plentifully supplied with water by a river brought into it from a great distance, which is so abundant that it runs to waste in the town. The dock, or new town, being totally destitute of water, petitioned Plymouth that a small portion of the conduit might be permitted to go to them, and this was now under consideration. Johnson, affecting to entertain the passions of the place, was violent in opposition, and half laughing at himself for his pretended zeal where he had no concern, exclaimed, "'No, no, I am against the dockers. I am a Plymouth man. Rogues!' Let them die of thirst, they shall not have a drop. Lord Macartney obligingly favoured me with a copy of the following letter in his own handwriting from the original which was found by the present Earl of Bute among his father's papers. To the Right Honourable the Earl of Bute My Lord, that generosity by which I was recommended to the favour of His Majesty will not be offended at a solicitation necessary to make that favour permanent and effectual. The pension appointed to be paid me at Michaelmas I have not received, and I know not where or from whom I am to ask it. I beg, therefore, that your lordship will be pleased to supply Mr. Wedderburn with such directions as may be necessary 
which, I believe, his friendship will make him think it no trouble to convey to me. To interrupt your lordship at a time like this, with such petty difficulties, is improper and unseasonable. But your knowledge of the world has long since taught you that every man's affairs, however little, are important to himself. Every man hopes that he shall escape neglect, and with reason may every man, whose vices do not preclude his claim, expect favour from that beneficence which has been extended to my lord, your lordship's most obliged and most humble servant, Samuel Johnson, Temple Lane, November 3, 1762. To Mr. Joseph Baretti at Milan. London, December 21, 1762. Sir, you are not to suppose, with all your conviction of my idleness, that I have passed all this time without writing to my Baretti. I gave a letter to Mr. Beauclerk, who, in my opinion and in his own, was hastening to Naples for the recovery of his health. But he has stopped at Paris, and I know not when he will proceed. Langton is with him. I will not trouble you with speculations about peace and war. The good or ill success of battles and embassies extends itself to a very small part of domestic life. We all have good and evil which we feel more sensibly than our petty part of public miscarriage or prosperity. I am sorry for your disappointment, with which you seemed more touched than I should expect a man of your resolution and experience to have been, did I not know that general truths are seldom applied to particular occasions and that the fallacy of our self-love extends itself as wide as our interest or affections. Every man believes that mistresses are unfaithful and patrons capricious, but he accepts his own mistress and his own patron. We have all learned that greatness is negligent and contemptuous, and that in courts life is often languished away in ungratified expectation. But he that approaches greatness, or glitters in a court, imagines that destiny has at last exempted him from the common lot. Do not let such evils overwhelm you as thousands have suffered, and thousands have surmounted, but turn your thoughts with vigour to some other plan of life and keep always in your mind that with due submission to providence a man of genius has been seldom ruined but by himself. Your patron's weakness or insensibility will finally do you little hurt if he is not assisted by your own passions. Of your love I know not the propriety, nor can estimate the power, but in love as in every other passion of which hope is the essence, we ought always to remember the uncertainty of events. There is, indeed, nothing that so much seduces reason from vigilance as the thought of passing life with an amiable woman. And if all would happen that a lover fancies, I know not what other terrestrial happiness would deserve pursuit." But love and marriage are different states. 
those who are to suffer the evils together and to suffer often for the sake of one another soon lose that tenderness of look and that benevolence of mind which arose from the participation of unmingled pleasure and successive amusement a woman we are sure will not be always fair we are not sure she will always be virtuous and man cannot retain through life that respect and assiduity by which he pleases for a day or for a month i do not however pretend to have discovered that life has anything more to be desired than a prudent and virtuous marriage therefore know not what counsel to give you. If you can quit your imagination of love and greatness and leave your hopes of preferment and bridal raptures to try once more the fortune of literature and industry, the way through France is now open. We flatter ourselves that we shall cultivate with great diligence the arts of peace and every man will be welcome among us who can teach us anything we do not know. For your part you will find all your old friends willing to receive you. Reynolds still continues to increase in reputation and in riches. Miss Williams, who very much loves you, goes on in the old way. Miss Cotterell is still with Mrs. Porter. Miss Charlotte is married to Dean Lewis and has three children— Mr. Levitt has married a street-walker, but the gazette of my narration must now arrive to tell you that Bathurst went physician to the army and died at the Havana. I know not whether I have sent you word that Huggins and Richardson are both dead. When we see our enemies and our friends gliding away before us, let us not forget that we are subject to the general law of mortality and shall soon be where our doom will be fixed for ever. I pray God to bless you, and am, sir, your most affectionate humble servant, Samuel Johnson. Write soon. End of section 25